The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping you are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating 10 years. Through the community. Created by the Hub. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. So, I'd very much like to welcome you here um, to uh, the final talk of um, of this lecture series, Trinity in the Changing City. My name is uh, David Landy, I'm the director of the Masters in Race, Ethnicity, Conflict. And this Masters was established by René Lenton over 20 years ago, during the start of the unprecedented migration to Ireland. And it was established to understand how Ireland dealt with what was then new migrants, how it actually dealt with the changes that this migration is causing Ireland. Because for the first time in Ireland in the 1990s, the denial of difference, which characterized my childhood for certainly, this stultifying homogeneity and this refusal to accept that being Irish was anything other than being white, heterosexual, Irish, settled and Catholic, no longer could hold sway. You could no longer deny that there is difference on the streets of Dublin. Now, the fact that denial of difference is no longer possible has not, as we know very well, meant that there has been an acceptance of difference, and an acceptance of different people, but rather new and even more toxic forms of racism. Now, a few weeks ago, I found myself where I never expected to be, um, Bob Brigham. Um, and it wasn't just like Bob Brigham, lovely place, lovely place, Bob Brigham. It was what I was actually doing in Bob Brigham, which was leafleting, traipsing around the streets, leafleting against a candidate who was standing in the by-election, who wasn't just a, a racist, but whose platform was racism. This is something I never expected would happen, but is happening here. Now, you know, this particular candidate only got a thousand votes in the by-election, which we counted as a success. And when you're seeing, how do you say, the instrumentalization, the politicization of racism uh, in Ireland, it's very easy to concentrate on these open, hideous, uh, forms of racism. And we're going to be talking about that tonight, these overt forms of racism, but also the hidden, covert way that race operates in the country. Now, each of our speakers are going to speak for 12 minutes each. Uh, I'm going to time you incredibly uh, carefully. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a timing Nazi. <laughs> 12 minutes maximum, yeah, I should say. Um, and then after, after each of the panelists speak, we'll be open to the floor. Before introducing them, I have to do a very quick uh, health and safety announcement. Firstly, to remind you that the event is being live-streamed and podcast. Uh, and secondly, to say that, uh, give a safety announcement, to ask you to note the position of the exits there and there, I feel like an air hostess. Um, to also to note the position of the toilets, which are two behind there and one there. In the event of emergency, take the stairs, don't take the lift. 
hopefully there won't be an emergency tonight. Um, and so, to do, so before uh, finishing speaking, I'd like to introduce the speakers. The first speaker we'll have tonight is Dr. Evan Joseph, who will be speaking about race in the labour market. Evan is a race relations consultant, an author and an activist. She's a lecturer with us in the MPhil in race ethnicity conflict, and she's also module coordinator and lecturer of Black Studies in UCD. She's the chairperson of the African Scholars Association of Ireland and has worked with Business in the Community Ireland for over nine years as a training and employment officer. Um, she's just back from Geneva where she was uh, speaking to the UN um, on behalf of um, Irish Network Against Racism and her research interests include critical race theory, race, racial stratification, migration and labour markets. Uh, the next speaker, David Joyce, who will speak about the uh, experience of travellers in Ireland, is a solicitor with the Mercy Law Resource Centre, specialising in housing and homelessness. Previously, David was a legal officer with Threshold, and has also held a position as a coordinator of the Offaly Travellers Movement, and as a legal uh, policy officer with the Irish Traveller Movement. He's been a member of expert bodies like the European Roma Rights Centre in Budapest, the NCCRI, and the, and the executive of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Uh, he graduated for, uh, with law degrees from King's Inn and also graduated with uh, diplomas in community development in youth from uh, NUI Minuth. Then we've got uh, next speaker is Bulalani Mifkal, who will be speaking about the experiences of asylum seekers. Bulalani has been protesting since his high school days when he's had to march for textbooks and better school in infrastructure. Growing up in an apartheid ghetto in Cape Town, he served on numerous community forums, including the local health forum, Neighbourhood Watch, and as a branch secretary for the Democratic Alliance. He left his native South Africa due to targeted killings of LGBT people where he lived, and he sought protection in Ireland. While living here, in direct provision, Bolani has gotten involved with Massey, the movement for asylum seekers in Ireland, where he's campaigning for the right to work for all asylum seekers, to end direct provision, and regularisation for undocumented people in Ireland. And last but not least, we've got uh, Dr Eugenia Ciapera, who will be speaking about online racism and the far right. Eugenia is a Professor of Information and Communication Studies and Head of the ICS School in UCD. Um, her research interests are in the school areas of digital social media, political communication and journalism. And Eugenia has recently completed a uh, IRC-funded project on racist hate speak in the ID, Irish digital sphere and is also working on a project on the digital memory of conflict. She's written numerous articles and uh, book chapters. Her most recent book is Understanding New Media and is currently working on an edited volume on gendered cyber hate. So there are speakers for tonight. The first speaker I'd like you to welcome is Dr. Evan Joseph. Before you um, have to buzz me off, let me try and time myself so nobody's bossing me, trying to get me to stop talking. You know, those who know me know that I, it's very difficult to shock me up, but we can watch David try. <laughs> All right, so, um, you know, like, I was wondering, like, where do I start from, you know, in 12 minutes, what do I want to say, how do I focus it, what do I want to focus on? So two key things I'm going to try and do tonight. So the first part of what I want to talk about, just in case, 
there is somebody in the room who is uncertain if there is um, racism, you know, in the workplace. You know, I will, you know, I will. Oops. <laughs> yeah. So just in case there there are a few people in the room who are uncertain about, you know, the experience of racism in the workplace, I will share some data, you know, to um, statistics to help us see that and that we hold that space. But what I hope to be able to do uh, and finish on would be to look at how we can actually have productive conversations, how we can talk about the uncomfortableness uh, and our lack of vocabulary in how to uh, talk about race and racism, because I think that that's where the main issue is. I thought I might start by you know, reading a few things from Twitter that happened between yesterday um, just yesterday because I was in Geneva and I gave um, and part of what I'm going to share today and I talked about the experiences of people of African descent and I was only tweeting what was happening I was only tweeting what the um, committee were saying but I've had to block so you might actually use me as part of your for your online hate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have in fact. <laughs> you know, you have, yes. So and I have snapshots of them, you know. And so I've had to block 40 people between yesterday and today. 40. Um, I mean some of the words are so just I'm like, oh my god. You know, and the interesting thing is that those words and um, those insulting racist words were actually from people who were upset that we could be in Geneva and suggest that Ireland could be racist or that there is racism in Ireland. I'm like, oops, how does this work? How do you, how do you say words about me and race and all of that? And then in the same breath, you're arguing about whether Ireland, whether there is racism in Ireland. One person actually challenged me and said, show me one racist. I'm like, really? <laughs> I almost wanted to be like Michael Jackson and say, look in the mirror. <laughs> But there are a few things that we know. We know because in 2009, a piece of research was done here in Ireland. And so this is not just EU one, it was done here in Ireland. And CVs from two, you know, from different people with the same experience, all that was changed was the name. The name on one set of CVs indicated the people, the applicant was foreign and the names on the other indicated an Irish name. And when they sent out those CVs to the same set of employees in 2009, mm. the result came back that those names that were foreign sounding had a 2.5% 2.5 callback ratio. Mm. What it means that two and a half for every two and a half of those CVs sent out before you know one person with a foreign sounding name would get a callback to attend interview compared to somebody who had an Irish name on the CV. And don't, let's, let's be clear about this. The experiences, the dates, everything on those two sets of CVs were exactly the same. Because when we begin to talk about racism in the labor market, we actually think that it's the ordinary Joseph on the street. We think, I'm like, no, it's the people making decisions. It's in the power. And so then we get conflicted, then we get into a twist, we begin to think of 
individual people who are doing bad things. And then again, I'm like, no, racism is not just the individual bad person. It's about a system. So we begin to look at how we see this racism from a, a system or from individuals. And then because we look at that and we focus just on the individual, we know that over 50% of people of migrant descent, most of them, 50% have, uh, they have a likelihood of um, over 50% of being underemployed when they actually do finally get employment. Not because, again, because most times when we begin to talk about labor market, people think about right to work. Do you have right to work? Do you have? I'm like, okay. So when I did my research, I actually researched on people who had right to work, who had been, you know, right to work for over 10 years, mm -hmm. so that whatever, you know, residue was there, they've had 10 years to overcome all of those residues. And they were still experiencing, you know, um, racism within the labor market. The Fundamental Rights Agency actually did a, a piece of um, a, a study, you know, we call the EU Midas II. If you read that, it was done in 2008, and the same research was repeated in 2016. And um, from that research, so again, it was across all of the EU, over 24,000, I think 24,500 people were interviewed in, in that research. It was a big, big piece of work. And it showed that, you know, people of Af not um, sub-Saharan African and not Africans and then Roma people experienced the highest level of discrimination. And the area where they experienced that level of discrimination was in the labor market. So it wasn't anywhere else, it was in the labor market when they were either looking for work or finding work or, or, or within the workplace. So we begin to look at all of those things and we look at Ireland. Ireland, I mean, and it was a very damning report for Ireland because Ireland ranked joint first in the highest you know level of discrimination experienced mm -hmm. so i'm like how how is that happening in our island you know probably somebody's gonna because i call it our island now i am totally going to be trolled <laughs> <laughs> because i'm not allowed to you know own island i'm not allowed to be part of Ireland because you know my grandparents did not fight the war, you know, uh, and, and Africans were not here, you know, and all of those, you know, those things, so I'm not supposed to say, ah, Ireland, you know. But when we look at, you know, things like that, we begin to ask ourselves, in my, in my study, what came out is that within the labor market, the experiences that people have is that they are going around in circles. So I'm not talking about people who don't have right to work. They have the right to work. You're going to tell us you know, about a lot of um, other things. But I'm saying that when, when even that right to work that you're fighting for, and that's why sometimes I don't jump on that wagon and even fight for right to work. I'm like, what are you saying? Those who even have right to work for 10 years can't navigate. They cannot assess the labor market. And so somebody might say, oh, you know, there's a, the, the WRC, you know, but the onus is on you. Who is the victim to actually go and prove that you've been victimized? So you, you don't have the money, you know, and you, they will say, oh, it's free. But if it is such a free system, those you are bringing a case against, they come with a suite of lawyers, you know, who come in there, you know, who come with them. 
You know, so when we begin to look at labor market experiences, we begin to see the experiences of, of discrimination within the workplace. We look at progression. When you look at secondary school, when young black people, people of African descent, in the secondary school, their results are fantastic, amazing. Then they get into our universities, something begins to happen. And then that progression from our university into the labor market, some of them graduate with first class, and they are made to graduate with them. And this is not hearsay. Those are the things that I talk about, the things that keep me up at night. Those are some of the things that keep me up at night. Because I get those calls. That they graduated with their mates, two graduated with a two-one, the second class, two-two. They graduated with a first class. They can't even find a place to do an internship. They can't even find places to do unpaid work. I know so many people who were here in Ireland who couldn't find unpaid work. They all migrated. Once they, you know, they got their citizenship, they migrated. And check our census statistics. It actually shows though the minister explained it in a different or, or the department explained it in a different way. It actually shows that the numbers of people of migrant descent, particularly Africans, has reduced in Ireland. And so to, so the in Geneva they were asking that where are these people going? I said I can tell you because I know loads of people who have migrated because you know they have their citizenship and they can go and work in other places. People who couldn't even find unpaid work in Ireland are overworked in other countries. So I'm saying, so what is the problem? So what is the problem? Because we're looking at antisocial behavior, we're looking at mental health, we're looking at, and we're talking about integration. We cannot integrate people without employment. Everything hinges on the labor market. If we don't get it right in the labor market, that is the proof, that is the beginning. It's not about our dress, our diet, and our dance. You know, the treaties, it's not about our treaties. So when we begin to look at that, so what are the key things I'm saying? We can sometimes we hear, you know, even the, you know, feel is here, you know, they do some great work around mixed race, you know, island, you know. So when we look at the work that they do around mixed race island, that work is interesting. And one of the things I say is, we we people of African descent today have a problem in the labor market because people from mixed race, you know, the mixed race people who were here in Ireland from the 70s, from the 60s, from the 50s. They were born here. They are not migrants. So, so when we begin to talk about race and racism and understanding what it means to be Irish, and we do not look at you know, our mixed race citizens who have been here, who were born here, this is their home. The only difference, and I said that the challenges that mixed race people have in Ireland, is not the part of them that is Irish, it's what they are mixed with. They are mixed with African. And so it's that mixedness that causes a challenge for them. You know, so we begin to look at all of those things that if those issues are not dealt with, we create a problem that has not been dealt with. Because we look at, you know, racism, we say, oh, you know, it only started, you know, in 2000. And like, but these people have been here from the 50s, 40s, 60s. We have a long history, longer than we dare to um, look at. So, in critical race theory, which is the work I do, it looks at that for us to actually begin to talk about race and racism, we must, first of all, look at a historical context. How is Ireland linked with these countries? How is Ireland linked? 
our experience in Ireland of race and racism, but also our experience of perpetrating race and racism. When we are not able to connect with that, there's a dissociation that, you know, we, we are not able to um, fully understand our parts, you know, in the racism that we, we experience. So, so when you begin to talk about race, key problems that I find, you know, and hopefully we might have a conversation around that. The key problems is, number one, the vocabulary. How do we talk about race? People get red in the face when we talk about race, when we mention the word racism, you know. So again, it's how we talk about race, um, the uncomfortableness, that when you see racism, how do we call it out? How are we able to press beyond our uncomfortableness? When we look at the key things, contact, when the things that, because the racism, we think it's a new thing, but it's looking at the things that trigger the racism that we begin to experience. And just to end, again, you know, um, Edmund Buck said something, you know, that, you know, that evil, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is what? Is when good men you know, do nothing. So when we, you know, who think we are woke, when we do nothing, you know, when we do nothing, then racism prevails. It is absolutely, and that's what we're saying, that it is absolutely not enough for us to be non-racist. We have to be what? Anti-racist. Non-racist is a passive, non-acting space. Unless we go beyond the space where we become anti-racist, nothing is going to change. If we wanted to have, uh, somebody posted on Twitter, which you really changed me and I will stop after that. If we wanted to, um, if you, if, and it was a really interesting analogy. It says, if we wanted to have architects and we never taught them mathematics, we would never have good architects. And if we want a society that is anti-racist and we never teach people what it is to be anti-racist, we can never have that. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, sorry, sorry for cutting you short, but uh, I also want to hear the wealth of experience that's in this room. So our next speaker is uh, David Joyce. You can indeed. Turned on, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's gone. So, uh, I, and just before I start, there's a couple of corrections I have to make. Is uh, I haven't played chess with David in a while, so he hasn't, I haven't, I haven't spoken to him in a while. So, I actually am not currently working with the Mercy Law Resource Center. I recently changed changed jobs, um, but I have worked. I had worked uh, as a, as a lawyer for the last uh, eight years, and and last three years particularly as a solicitor in the area of homelessness and housing law with Mercy Law. Um, yeah, I mean, it sort of raises a number of questions, and I have my own brief answer sometimes. I, mean, I think it's perfectly easy to, to talk about racism and to talk to racists. You know, you just tell them to feck out them because that, that's what they need, you know. And, and don't admit fear of, of doing that. I mean, there's no re there's a reality of, of listening to somebody. Um, you know, and you can get it in terms of their terminology or whatever. And I, I'm going to speak in, in what I'm going to speak about in terms of travellers. It's certainly the kind of the, the kind of last form of acceptable terminology that gets used against any group of people in Ireland. We can't call black people nasty names. We can't call Jews nasty names. But we can call travellers nasty names, and there's no problem. There's no actual um, real repercussion. You know, you can still run for election, and you know, you, you get tapped on the back for it. So, uh, and another thing in terms of everything, I mean.
Certainly, you know, I don't think there's any false pretense that racism only began in 2000. I mean, I can certainly say um, it's been there a long time. Um, and, you know, it, it's how you look at it and how you define it. I mean, certainly if you need sort of thing, the notion of racism is something that's to do with black. Look, I'm standing here, I'm six foot three, I'm blue-eyed, and I'm a white Irishman. Do I experience racism? You know, people say, how could I? You know, as I said, that's my description. I mean, I'm the, probably the racist as opposed to the, the victim of racism. Um, but certainly the, the community I come from and the people I've grown up in have, can only, I can only describe their experience of life and my experience growing up in that life as a, a type of racism. And whether you look at it as, as it can only exist because I'm black or somebody else is white or, or, or vice versa, uh, just clearly, you know, in the same way as that you might consider anti-Semitism as a form of racism. Or, or, or antis. Certainly the experience of Irish travellers in Ireland has been an experience of racism. They're probably the only community that have been uttered for centuries in terms of legislation and in terms of society. It's gone on for generations. And has resulted in statistics that are, when you look at, at sort of access to employment, and when it talks about, you know, doing studies of situations in the workplace, when you can't even get into the workplace, because of prejudice or because of barriers, then you can't really look at what is the experience of travellers in the workplace. But those who do and have got in, unfortunately in many cases have to hide their background, have to hide their identity. And I know that from, from, from personal experience of my own children who, 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 who have gone into, into work and will come back and tell me sometimes that it's very difficult for them to even talk about their background. Uh, and, and one particular person works in a very multicultural background who are actually almost being from another country is an advantage, but being a traveller in Ireland, she would see it as a, as a disadvantage in terms of progressing in her career. So, you know, to say that racism is only something that is recent in Ireland, um, I certainly think is a misnomer. But having said that, challenging racism is all very similar, I think, because I think the type and how, they, how people experience it, whether you're black or whether you're white, is, is, is quite similar. They, and the effects it will have on people, the kind of exclusion as the, of the individual and the effect it will have on the individual in terms of their own sort of self-worth or, 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 I suppose, belief in themselves. But also in terms of your community and why you would deny or try to disassociate yourself from, from a community in which you've grown up or a, or a group of people that you have, as I said, um, identified with because of, 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 of your kind of cultural background. Um, and those are the things that, that you know, where, where integration happens is, is the conflict for the individual, it's conflict for the person. I said, I'm a lawyer, I'm white and I'm Irish, and I don't have to stand up here this evening in training and talk about racism or talk about, you know, the experience of, of, of the community I come from. I can go off and hide somewhere and maybe sit in a pub or just go off on my bicycle and cycle around the city. Um, but I do here because, I, you know, it does have an impact, and whether or not I want to sort of deny that or not, it has had an impact on me personally over the years, and certainly on, on, on the people I've worked with that I've known. Um, and, you know, we see it in terms of travellers, in terms of statistics. And just, you know, I, I'm assuming that most people in the room are computer literate. Um, and have, you know, might have done some research. And, and I'm not going to give a look at all the statistics, but you can go and look yourself and, and some of the organisations and the websites. So, I mean, it's quite a small population. I mean, it's probably about, officially there's less than 30,000 people who identify themselves as travellers in the last Irish census. I mean, in reality, in terms of the work over the years and what organisations say, there's probably about 50,000 people who are and could identify themselves as Irish travellers in Ireland. Um, and add to that about another 25,000 or 30,000 in Britain and probably 25,000 people in the United States who could also identify themselves or do identify themselves as members of the Irish traveller community. 
And uh, when you take, combine that sort of numbers, you're talking about less than 100,000 people. But like other nomadic groups that cross Europe and have existed across Europe, travellers have been uh, you know, traditionally ostracised and uttered and in the category of, of the Gypsy or the Roma. And certainly when you look at the situation of Roma across Europe, uh, and some of it is based on, on almost on, on, on skin colour or it's based on, on cultural exclusion, the reality of, of Roma, who are at the bottom rung of most societies in Europe, and, and travellers in a sense have fulfilled or have been in that rung in common with Roma and, and Gypsies across Europe for, for, for centuries, and have been caught by the same type of legislation that have, has uttered them and, and kept them out. Um, I don't apologise at all for, you know, there's so many challenges I can't say I'm Irish. I mean, I am Irish, so, you know, this is my island and, and I live in it and I've experienced racism in it and my people have experienced racism in it. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 to, to looking at how you challenge it and again coming back to the notion of, of, of challenging it, I mean, you don't step away from it and you don't make excuses for it and you tell people. And I agree with the, with the previous speaker that, you know, we, it's very easy to identify, you know, the, the kind of the hoodie on the street who calls your names or identifies you from, from your background and, and sort of shouts slogans at you. Uh, when in reality, what really keeps a people or a community oppressed in some sense is, is the institutional barriers that are created because of, of who you are, your social background or your, 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 your ethnic background or, or your racial background. Um, and they are the reality, that is the reality, that is, the, that, but that, institutions are made up of people, they're not something that exists by themselves, so, you know, we can always talk about, and, you know, we have the analysis, anybody who studies racism or deals with racism, we talk about institutional racism or individualized racism, but institutions can only operate because of the people who are in those institutions, and those, in, those in the people in those institutions are individuals, and they carry in with them the prejudices and the attitudes that they have, towards people of, 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 uh, of colour, people of, of other ethnic minority backgrounds. And, and that's how it gets reflected in, in the institutions. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, we have had over the last 15, 20 years discussions about um, institutionalised racism and sometimes it's almost like an excuse for saying, well, you know, the people in there are good, it's the institution that's bad. And we sometimes forget, as I said, that you know, the institution are the people. There is the people who bring the attitudes in. So challenging individual racism and challenging individuals, I think, is one of the most important ways of challenging institutionalised racism. And certainly, institutions, because they're created by statute or created by the state, can be created in statute to be equal. They can be created in a way that, that they, they're non-discriminatory or that they provide opportunities for people who get into them. But if those positions are still maintained and, and controlled by individuals who have particular attitudes that are not addressed, then we can't really adequately address institutional racism just purely through legislation alone. So we do always have to look at individuals and look at why individuals have developed the types of attitudes and the types of, 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 of um, opinions perhaps, shall I say, uh, to be kind about it, uh, towards, towards people who are, are from a different background or as I said, who have been traditionally uttered in their society. And that's to do with the demographics perhaps, it's to do with the fact that they have very little exposure to other communities, the very little exposure to other people. And unfortunately for, for the victims of racism, and I would use the word victim, um, for those communities who are victimised by racism and who are oppressed by it, it's very hard in farm, we talked about it around, but you know, the notion of people progressing in careers or progressing in, 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 in work. 
it's very hard for that to happen when, when role models are, are denied to them as well, when the role models are denied to communities and, and you're, they're not seen, um, it's easier just to hide. And I said, it would have been easier for me just to go off my bike to see it on top of Ristam. Thank you very much. Well, I'd, I'd prefer to discuss this in a kind of a, a, a question and answer session than, than continue. Thank you. So a challenge to myself is to get through it in 12 minutes. Um, I spent six hours today sitting in a meeting where I was the only black person in the room. Usually the golden rule is to simply walk out. But I couldn't because I was there to represent asylum seekers and I was the only asylum seeker there. For a lot of people, they wouldn't have a problem with just having that one person, but I do because in many, case, in many instances that simply means that you're ticking a box somewhere that you have, I mean, perfect, I have dreadlocks. <laughs> you had a black person there. Oh, we've got participation from an asylum community. But who else is around you making decisions? And that's institutional racism there. People of migrant uh, ethnic minorities, people from migrant background, travelers, black people, people of Asian descent, people of Eastern European descent, do you see them as decision makers in Ireland? Mm -hmm. No. But when you walk around Dublin in the streets, you don't see just white and Irish, do you? When you go into a shop, you don't see white and Irish. You see the diversity of Ireland. And that's not reflected in our decision-making structures, right through public sector and private sector. Some companies will do it love this. Pride. Gay pride. Yeah, you can have the gays. <laughs> it's Africa, what, uh, Africa, Africa Day. Africa. Yeah, and the, the, there's another one, uh, Refugee Week. We love that one. <laughs> A week for refugees. But in reality, the life, the everyday lived experiences of refugees, migrants, people, ethnic uh, uh, minorities live longer than just one day or one week and they are dictated by the structures that we find ourselves having to navigate, being excluded from particip full participation in Irish life. So the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland was founded in... Uh, Where is my navigation? <laughs> it was founded in 2014 in Kinsale Road in Cork. It's a direct provision centre, just... Uh, uh, I've, I've never been there actually. I live in one that looks exactly like it by design. It's also run by the same company, Aramac. If you go into a canteen in Trinity, you're likely to be buying food from Aramac. They make millions out of direct provision centres. But we had a protest in 2014. Asylum seekers were fed up with the way the Irish state was treating them and they decided to close the centre and shut it down for 10 days. They didn't allow uh, staff to go into the centre, so all the services that would have been provided by staff for that full 10 days were provided by asylum seekers working together with uh, local residents. So people in Cork, businesses in Cork, 
provided food, they were, they were delivering food for the first time, 2014, for the first time in the island, asylum seekers were able to cook. 2014, the government went to the UN recently, and they're like, hey, we have self-catering facilities. In 2019, that's the best you can do. You want to be applauded for allowing people to cook in 2019. Some people, not every asylum seeker, because it's not all the direct provision centers that allow people to cook. Like You want to be applauded for that, really? People have to queue in food halls. Food halls. Does anybody here know where Capuchin Day Center is? That's what people queue for food parcels every Wednesday, I think. Homeless people and impoverished Irish people queue there, and migrants queue there for food. Every government normalizes that for asylum seekers. Like, you have to go in in Mosley and queue in a food hall. Queue for milk, queue for sugar, queue for salt. Company, paid by tax money, provides that sugar. And that's normalized, that I have to go to a company and ask for sugar? It's a company paid for by the government to give me sugar. Do you do that? And so local, local people turned up there and supported the protest. I figured out how to navigate this. You know? uh, and the protests themselves highlighted the issues that, I mean, back then it was 1910 per week. Somebody in the Department of Justice, actually we can name him because he was named Brian Marriman, <laughs> opposed the increase to the weekly allowance. It's 1910. It became 2160. Why would you want to increase it to 3880? Why, what, what good reason would you have for that? I mean, 3880, that's a lot of money. What are you going to do with 3880? I can't even go to the dentist to claim my teeth. Something that I was able to do when I was working. <laughs> Can't do that with 3880. Lives in limbo, people living in direct provision centers. Nobody else in Ireland except for somebody who came here claiming asylum lives in direct provision center. That's racism. Because it's ethnic minorities who live there. It's migrants who live there. It's not people like you, it's people like me. 10 years. That's 2019, by the way. They said, oh, we'll improve things, we'll process things faster. Mm -hmm. Mental health issues. Imagine if you weren't allowed to work. Even when you are allowed to work, you are given restrictions. You'll have to wait for nine months. For that nine months, you're expected to wake up Go queue for food in the food hall. <laughs> Eat, shower, go play pool if you like pool, play cards, play football. If you don't speak English, you can join one of the uh, English lessons somewhere, learn English for nine months. And sleep, prisoner's routine. After nine months, we'll allow you to work. But then employers don't even want to hire you. <laughs> Depression. A lot of people living in direct provision centers are on antidepressants. I have to take sleeping aids, so I take sleeping pills. Before I enter the asylum system, I never depended on any kind of medication and whatsoever. I hate pills. I'm on a waiting list to see a shrink. 
Normally they just give you antidepressants to numb the pain because they don't process trauma with antidepressants. We know from uh, uh, experience and statistics that one in every two asylum seekers in Ireland has survived torture, sexual violence, inhumane and degrading treatment, or a combination of the three. Lock them up in limbo in direct provision, you compound that. South Korean woman in Kok, 2016, Hyo Jung-an is her name. Her child was playing outside the direct provision center with another child in the morning. The boy was done playing, went back to his room, knocked in the room. There was no answer, kept knocking, there was no answer. He's looking for his mommy, asked security and stuff. He's opened the room, opened the room, his mother thanked herself in a direct provision center and died. She was not the first, she was not the last to do so in a direct provision center. March this year, young man, in his 20s, from Eritrea, in Kildare Monastery, was found dead. He hanged himself. He had only been in the country for a few months. We already know people coming to Ireland seeking asylum are already traumatized. Put them in a flight provision center, you compound the trauma. That's the result. Or you get people being addicted to either alcohol or drugs. I started taking photographs in Nokrishin. I live in Nokrishin Direct Provision Center. Started taking photographs of the uh, alcohol that you have in the Direct Provision Center. Every, uh, we get a check, 3880. So people get together, I mean, it's not much 3880, but if it's five of us, it's 150 like, or so more. Don't know how my maths goes, but. <laughs> You get what I mean. Five of us, we can buy maybe two bottles and a few cans. We'll drink and be merry, our misery away for a few hours. A little bit. Maybe we might get weed if we like it. I come from the Republic of South Africa. We used to live in a segregated world. Some people still do, most people actually still do. If you've traveled to Cape Town, when you fly into Cape Town, you will see it. You'll see where the black people live. You'll see where the white people live. They kicked out, in, in the 1950s, they kicked out black people through uh, uh, racial segregation laws, apartheid laws, moved them away from the city. You could only live in an area that was designated for your race group. We couldn't even sit on the same park bench like Ireland today. That's Athlone Direct Provision Center. That's Athlone Direct Provision Center. Who lives there? Asylum seekers. People like me. Guess what? If you walk over this, there's a little, it's a bit high, right? Just over there. Guess who lives there? Travelers. The undesirables of Irish society as neighbors. That's the uh, That's Mosni. They hail Mosni as the best. Like this year in Mosni, a woman attempted suicide. She overdosed on pills because she believed that her children would be treated better if she was dead. And actually, children who are claiming asylum in Ireland who come on their own, 
are unaccompanied adjectives somewhat better than a child living in a direct provision center. Because if you live in a direct provision center, it's your parents who are responsible for every other thing that the state is providing for you. But your parents might not be allowed to work. Your children will still be going to the same schools as everybody else who is allowed to work. So you see the difference there. Mothers end up doing desperate things, such as selling sexual favors in order to make ends meet. Mother uh, told an Irish court that she had to sell sexual favors in order to make ends meet in direct provision centers. Silence, racism by the Irish state. We condemn it when it's happened. When somebody calls me a nigger, we'll condemn it. But if when somebody calls me a nigger, we'll condemn it. But if it's an institution that makes racist policies, we accept it. Because for many of us, find it difficult to challenge. It took hundreds of years for South Africa to get over a racist regime. More than 300 years. Started from slavery, colonialism, learning and apartheid. It should not take you that long to enter a function. Thank you. So, um, very hard hack to follow all three of you. So, um, my presentation is slightly uh, underwhelming, I guess, and um, it does, um, though, um, try to kind of like spin off the theme of um, racism in the city and then uh, moves on to discuss how the digital and the urban kind of like uh, element, the physical element are involved when it comes to um, racism. Um, if I get this to work. Yeah, I want to set it up first running here. Now it's the third one, that one. Yeah, that's it. Okay. All right. So um, I just want to begin with this slide here. I don't know if you can see it. Ireland belongs to the Irish. This was from uh, Fingless Roundabout, very close to where I live. So people who would be like going to taking the children to school would see this kind of stuff. So this is like the physical element, the physical manifestation of, of racism in the, in the urban uh, context. Um, I'm pretty sure this is a video now. Um, I'm pretty sure you've seen this. Who hasn't? Um, I, maybe I should play a little bit just to hear the voice here. Um, okay, you can't hear a voice, or maybe you can. For rashers, rashers and sausages. Rashers, sausages. Huh? Have you have you pork? Do you sell pork? Why not? You're in Ireland. Yeah. We, we love our pork. <laughs> it was halal only. Halal in the middle of swords, no pork, need not apply. Okay, well pork is one of our national foods in Ireland. Okay, I will stop it here because you get the gist uh, and I only have a few minutes left. 
So that's the idea of like someone who could do this, like this is racial harassment. She went into the shop and like really bullied this um, person who was totally bewildered, thinking like, you want pork? It's just across there. <laughs> she was just trying to make this point of like poor um, pork eaters in Ireland are discriminated against. So, um, and it's not, obviously, it's not the only thing here. We have like a whole, a whole series of events that happen in both the physical environment but also at the same time in the digital environment. So you have like documentaries, you have like actions, activist actions taking place, uh, you have organizing, but you also have criminal events like um, the firebombing of a hotel that was um, uh, proposed to be a direct to host uh, asylum seekers. So what um, I have tried to kind of like capture here is what we see as emerging as an emerging tactic of the far right in not only in Ireland uh, globally, a social media event. So they go out in the streets, do something, attract some kind of like publicity, film it, and then post it online. And then they post it online as journalism because the mainstream media don't give them a voice, although they're all over the mainstream media. Um, so that is the kind of like idea here that um, that there is some kind of action. Even if they get like two people looking at them, they're still going to film it and present it, spin it differently online, and that creates obviously a lot of kind of like uh, traction in social media. So also they have a much longer shelf life. If something happens to you in the street, it happens, it finishes. But this goes on and on and on and on, and <coughs> until someone takes it down. But does actually someone takes take down this kind of stuff. And here's where we can move into the uh, very fraught area of content governance in social media. So I want to just very quickly go through some very basic things about how Facebook um, moderates or manages hate speech on its platform. Um, so they have like this approach where they say, we do not accept dangerous individuals or hateful groups or political parties, so we take them down. And then the second part is that they take down hateful posts. So when it comes to hate uh, organizations, they have like a very specific definition. But then, this is a screenshot of what I, um, that I took like a few minutes before I came here. So they define hate organizations, but then someone like Gemma Doherty does not qualify as one, so therefore she's on Facebook still and able to kind of like post this non-racist and not hateful material. So it's a question of how they define this and also uh, the fact that they said that they're going to take down uh, white nationalists uh, but not white, sorry, whites, um, what is it now? Because to me they're the same, so it's uh, white supremacists are taken down but not white nationalists, although like I sincerely cannot tell the difference. Now they've been, um, uh, they said like, okay, now we're going to take white nationalists down, but they're still all over Facebook. So um, the second way in which they approach hate speech is through individual kind of like posts. It's not an individual, if you're a hateful organization, everything you post will be taken down. You won't be allowed to have an account. But when it comes to hate speech, these are individual pieces of content that will be taken down. So they define this on the basis of certain protected characteristics like race, ethnicity, national origin, and so forth. And they say they've organized the material in t different tiers. So the first one is the dehumanizing content, comparisons to animals and things like that. That is 
uh, immediately taken down. This is what uh, we also understand as illegal hate speech in the context of Europe. Uh, secondly, the tier number two is content that states inferiority. So, like, this group of people are better than others, or this group of people are uh, less than others. So that kind of stuff is taken down. And then calls for segregation or exclusion are kind of, like, semi-allowed, because we allow, they say specifically, criticism of immigration policies and arguments for restricting these policies. So this type of stuff they allow because they think that this debate should um, be allowed. They also allow things about like transgender identities and things like that. So if I say, if someone says something about how transgender people should not do this or that, then this kind of stuff is allowed in, because it's debate. Um, so they also have introduced a quasi-protected category, which are the migrants, um, protect, which are protected from <coughs> violent speech and dehumanization, but not against calls for exclusion. So this would be the migrant identity and the transgender identity would fall under this kind of like category. When it comes to moderating, uh, contrary to a lot of what a lot of people think, it's not the number of people who report a particular kind of like post, but it is the quality of this post. So it doesn't matter how many times you report it, uh, it still is going to be seen um, by someone. But the key issue here is that you have to report it. Uh, although uh, Facebook is operating now through automated content, automated al algorithms who, which go through the contents and identify certain posts as problematic, and then they would be flagged and moderators will see them and say, okay, this is, um, this is hate speech, take it down, or this isn't. So uh, that's how it works. Um, so in all cases, human moderators see contents and determine what will be removed on the basis of a set of rules that Facebook describes as community standards. So these are uh, very complicated um, uh, standards, very and the whole process is very labor-intensive, and there are a lot of mistakes made, and a lot of ed what they call edge cases, like cases that you cannot determine one way or another. Um, but also, of course, they make deliberate decisions. So, for example, this is a slide that comes from uh, uh, leaked materials, leaked to the press, that Facebook is using this to train moderators. So this is like your test here. Uh, which kind of like uh, subjects do we protect? Female drivers, black children, or white men? And the answer is white men. So the rationale for this is because white men are two protected categories, white, which is race, and men, which is gender, whereas black children is protected category, which is black, but a not protected category, which is children, and the same for female drivers. So some of the contents here were very, very nasty, like women drivers should be hit on the head, or black children should do this or that, and they weren't taken down, whereas white men are assholes was taken down immediately as hate speech. So this is the kind of, uh, of this, like, this is a deliberate kind of decision made by Facebook that they think it's fair to do this because it, it, it's part of, like, their community standards, but you can understand how problematic this kind of stuff is. Um, also, when it comes to migrants, uh, all this stuff they allow, all this is, comes from Facebook's um, leaked um, training materials. So migrants should not be allowed, deport the migrants, build the fence, asylum seekers out, all this is allowed in favour of debate. Uh, this, this is again from the training slides, 
And you see here what is very interesting is that Holocaust denial is IP block. So they can do this. They can technically do this. They can block certain things if they want to, and they are actually doing it. So what is the rationale in saying, okay, we understand that you know Holocaust denial is actually problematic practice in Germany, but it's fine if you say it in America. Okay, two minutes. So, summing up, um, what I think is important to know out of all this is the following that although there is a tendency to take down the dehumanizing, the illegal part of hate speech, and this is good, it's not good enough, because what you have is an under, like, you know, a scaffolding of a lot of other things that bring you to this illegal hate speech. So if you leave all of this to percolate and you take out only the tip of the iceberg, then what is the point? It's, it's pointless. You might as well do nothing. So... Um, Returning again to this idea of how do we reconcile the urban, the physical environment, the digital environment, we have to see them as interconnected. What happens in the online sphere is intricately, immediately connected with what happens in the urban environment where we all kind of like um, move. Racist hate in one is directly linked to the other and they cannot be separated. There is evidence that suggests that uh, online um, uh, hate speech is linked to violence in offline contexts. So this is, this, there, is, there is evidence for that. It's not just words. It's not something that you can dismiss as like, yes, but it's words, it doesn't actually hurt people. It does hurt people, and we know it does. Both because it translates into violence, but also because the words themselves are violence. They do violence to people. <coughs> but also finally, and this is very kind of like superficial, but uh, because I don't have the time to, to dig, dig into this, but I don't think that digital hate and digital racism can be addressed without addressing um, racism uh, in its institutional dimensions that we saw earlier, but also within the context of what we can refer to as, as racial capitalism. So I'll just stop here um, for the time being and then follow up through questions. Thank you. to all the speakers and we've uh, about 25 minutes now for questions and answers so what I'd like to do is uh, take questions a few at a time and if you could um, keep them really short um, and also or else I will um, and if you want to indicate if your question is directed to any specific person Uh, yes, he's up there. There's a roving mic going around. Hi, this was all really, really interesting. Thanks to all the speakers. Uh, to the last speaker, um, your last point we were talking about uh, racial capitalism. Uh, you didn't go into that, but I'd be really interested to hear more. Okay, thanks a lot. And there's a speaker, uh, someone just said behind you. Ken McHugh from uh, Sport Against Racism. Um, a couple of points to note, the, um, the importation of the symbol, the Celtic cross, which is used in Ukraine, uh, Italy and Poland by uh, hooligan football fans, is quite evident, particularly during the last uh, election campaign, where it was superimposed on a tricolor. And some of the candidates were actually using um, John Lennon's quite famous song, Give Ireland Back to the Irish. You know, this is it. 
very dangerous uh, development that we need to nip in the bud straight away. But I'd just like to ask you the question about the... Um, as Sari as is, is a member of the European uh, Network Against Racism, very briefly, and um, we, we have a protocol uh, for, for elections, an anti-racism protocol. Do you, do you um, think that the, um, the mea culpa actions of two of the candidates uh, are undermining the, is undermining the, the protocol? Because you have the uh, Minister of Justice, for example, taking the candidate by the hand and bringing them in to introduce them to a direct religion centre. And another candidate going to a confession box in a party point, and, and you know, I think that's. I'm just asking a question about the. Do you reckon it undermines the uh, the protocol? Thank you. Okay, thanks. And uh, just one more question, and then we'll go back to the panel. Hi, thank you. Can't see And this is with regards to the uh, the online um, uh, talk. I'm just curious if there's. Uh, you know, the one element is identifying where there are problematic examples of speech and trying to have standards to reduce it uh, or limit it, of course, really difficult. Uh, but then I'm just wondering, in terms of research on how to engage the conversation actively in a way that, without necessarily focusing just on removing content, which takes conversations away from more sort of hateful uh, directions and sort of encourages dialogue that's a little more constructive, if that's another approach. Okay, thanks very much. Um, uh, a lot of questions directed towards Eugenia, so I suppose if we start with yourself. Okay, for um, uh, racial capitalism, I think that what, uh, the, the reason I find this very kind of like um, important concept is because it links the, the it, it links racism to the economic process. So racism wouldn't occur unless it was expedient for the system. So uh, you have to recognize the kind of like the um, the threads that connect the two and address them in tandem. So there's a whole political economy. It's not by accident that the labor market is uh, the, the key kind of like manifestation of racism. Within like a Marxist approach, this the idea of like the labor reserve of keeping part of the population underemployed or co control the, the amount that the labor cost is very, very important. So from this point of view, racism plays a very uh, crucial role in sustaining capitalism. So you have to address racism within the economic context. So um, this would be probably the, the topic for another very long lecture rather than, than but, um, but I'm happy to give you some uh, references or if you Google it in Google Scholar, I'm sure you'll find uh, more about this. Um, when it comes to Ken's uh, point, I think it's very important because what, uh, what we see in this kind of like appropriation of uh, symbols from racist and far-right groups, it's the, the because you cannot you cannot say it's racist if you see it's not strictly speaking racism. It's like the the rise of identitarians we called it because you have people who say I have no problem with black people, but they have to go back to their own country, and each one of us have to be in their own countries. Like you know, I admire the Poles, I admire the Greeks. This was an actual post. They have fantastic cultures, but they have to go back home and practice their cultures there, as if like. You know, we all live in this kind of like contained nation states. So, um, but what is crucial is to see how the far right is usurping. It's like stealing the, the uh, left wing rhetoric of emancipation for its own causes. So, a lot of what they're saying, like especially people like General Doherty, for example, it's like yes, let's keep the Irish identity intact from the globalists, from like 
you know, the people who control the capital, but of course the people who control the capital are, like, it's an anti-Semitic trope. So, um, so that comment there, and I'll just very uh, quickly go to the last question. I think this is a very interesting question because you have to kind of like look at it from um, two points of view. The first one is that, but for, let me just go back to Facebook's practice. So Facebook has an active and ongoing policy to encourage counter-narratives. So they're saying taking down stuff is not on, on its own, it's not enough. We have to generate counter-speech that perhaps could be more productive in taking down uh, hateful contents. But in fact, what we see is that this fits very, very nicely with Facebook's business model that relies on this kind of a constant generation of contents and more contents and more contents. We also know um, from the work of Gavin Titley, for example, that uh, debating racism is a key part. So you don't just accept that it exists, you have to question, does it exist? Was this racist? How was it racist? And then you get caught up in this endless kind of like discussions and debates and nothing gets done. So that's, I'm just going to stop here because I'm sure others have other things to say. Yeah, I think yeah. let me just, just to say that, you know, just around them online hate, um, just to say, you know, even from my own experience, so I'm, I'm constantly faced with a dilemma, you know, so I get a lot of online hate, so if I post anything that has to do with race, I don't even have to say anything, you know, so I get, or if I appeared on television or something, so sometimes I'm faced with, so, and the question is, how do I respond? So I decide, okay, you know what, I won't engage so that, you know, then the conversation just stops. Mm -hmm. So I report and block, report and block, you know. And then sometimes you get tired and you decide, you know what, I would respond. Maybe, you know, I would answer the questions, you know. And then you start answering the questions and you realize, actually, no, you know, this, is, this person doesn't really want to know. They just want to have a, a back and forth. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it's a really frustrating space where you, at one time, you want to engage and you don't engage. But I think one of the things that has helped me most as a victim of online hate has been, um, there have been a lot of bystanders who have actually done something. You know, so yesterday there would have been two lads who took on one hater. They literally took on the hater online and they went back and forth and I had to send an inbox message to say thank you. Because I couldn't comment online. If I commented online, the hate would have continued. So I sent them an inbox message just to know, okay, I see you so helping me out in this fight. You know, so I, I don't know, you know, like, you know what, what the best thing is to address that. But I'm just speaking that as somebody who experiences that hate, it is really um, strengthening. Um, to have people who are not just bystanders, but who actually step in there, either to say something. Some people say, get off our page. You know, there's just, you know, all kinds of things, you know, that, that go up there. But I think that basically, that we cannot just have just this conversations, like you say, you know, looking at it, it's like putting a, a, a plaster on a tree. We need to go back to the basics. We need to teach it. We need to start teaching from primary schools, secondary schools, universities, how to manage difference. It is not enough that our teacher or our ministers or our heads of schools can be somebody who has only attended one hour of unconscious bias training. It is absolutely not enough. If you sit down in a chair, 
after one hour from conscious bias training, you will get up a racist from that chair if you were a racist before you sat down. So we need to make sure that it starts from primary school, how to manage difference, how to, you know, and that's where for me it is the key thing. less likely to, to take or have foundation in a capitalist structure because capitalism is about hierarchies and about tiers and, and you create that system. So you know whether it gets expressed and whether you know people you know massive multinational companies like Twitter who make massive amounts of money out of their systems or Google or anything else, you know, it's almost they're hits for them. You know, it is money, you know, the fact that you have people like Jim or Doherty who complete and utter and what actually strikes me very much about um, Gemma is that Gemma never talks about travellers for some reason. We've been co-opted uh, into this sort of false nationalism that she's created. You know, I mean, in some sense, she wouldn't be handled for that. You know, it's quite interesting. My reaction to the very first picture up there, the very first photograph of Irish for, for Irish for the Irish, you know, uh, painting fingers. If I'd seen that 25 years ago, perhaps, or 20 years ago, I thought that that's something that I've had now out now with the paintbrush, you know. Yeah. It, had, it would have had a different message to something. It still sounded on a nationalist ideology and nationalist notion, but it would have had a different... You know, so whether now it's been painted by, by sort of skinheads or racists who, who see Irishness as pure white and, 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 and that's it, uh, or whether it's still by some, uh, you know, political message in terms of Irish and uh, being opposed to, to the British rule. Uh, the message has changed perhaps in that 20 year, 25 years period. Because I looked at it and I said, well, yeah, that sounds very good. Because I saw those, I grew up on Avenue, we used to have them on the bridge on the way in, not the basic as that. But it, it wasn't founded, I shall we say, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a you know, kicking communities out. It was, it was very political in that sense. And, and the message here was, but now it has a, it's taken on. And, and that's what Irish nationalists have done. They've, they've in some sense, co opted. Uh, sometimes more political messages, but also communities that have traditionally been uh, outsiders or, or other than the society, trying to make them part of the national as well. Um, does does the recent elections undermine or, or, or issues in the recent undermine the, the kind of? Um, no, I, I'm not sure if it does. I, mean, I, I, I felt very strange about the kind of comments that were made recently by by, by politicians. In one sense, as a human being, I can almost forgive people for, for something they made or did or, or said 10 or 15 years ago and, and where you've made mistakes. And it was a genuine sort of change in a person's mentality. But that has to come about in terms of, 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 of not just an apology, but also in terms of what, what actions have taken place and what they've supported. And, and when you, you know, you maintain being part of a structure that, that you know, still is illegalizing uh, elements of the travel way of life or, or anything else and I'm not not addressing that in your 
so-called reformed state, then I find it harder to forgive, um, you know, past past mistakes because uh, you know you certainly highlighted in the past by your words and your actions continue to show that, that your apology is very hollow. Um, I mean, what are it undermines? I know I didn't work of, of, of organisations like like Sport Against Racism and Einar and other organisations who, who try and bring about um, a level of, of of decency in political debate. It's not undermined by by the fact that it exists. It, it, yeah, it certainly is undermined by by two-faced politicians, perhaps who who um, say one thing on one side about something else with the other. Um, but that doesn't say we shouldn't be trying to, to do it, we shouldn't be trying to, to encourage a more decent level of debate in politics. Politics is something that people will have extremes on. But you know, what Gemma does is not political, it's not politics, that's just hate. And um, that shouldn't be, be tolerated at any level. And I have no problem, you know, tweeting uh, you know. Uh, the, the comment about engaging with races, and I do think you have to engage certainly at a level, but you have to engage at a level where people have may have an opinion that is misinformed or ignorant and, and you try and debate not necessarily to change but to enlighten in some sense and people will change over time themselves. People are coming from an entrenched position of hate and can't be debated with. You just call them out for what they are. And and you know you highlight it and you, you, you try and make sure that, that decent members of society see though that type of ideology is wrong. So I, I don't think he can he can debate with it with a, with a core or a hardened racism who has a racist ideology, they can't be debated with. That's their ideology and you won't change it. Um, people then on, 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 on the sort of fringes of that who, who you know, make statements or things that from misinformation or from ignorance can be informed and can, you know, perhaps through debate and discussion see something different. But I think unfortunately um, ideological racists are irredeemable, in my opinion. Um, we've got time for another round of questions. Um, uh, yeah. um, I just want to thank you all um, for sharing your experience and thank Dr. Lamy for facilitating this. Um, and I think tonight institutionalised racism was mentioned a lot. And I'm really glad to see a representative of the travelling community here. Um, I'm not representing any community. I'm taking myself to know what I'm doing. Yeah, but I, I was, um, as Patrick Nevin mentioned, the first kind of institutionalised racism that was ever applied by the Irish state was towards race, was towards tra the travelling community. That was kind of used then as a framework towards different minorities um, along, along the years. And I just kind of want to, because to me, there seems, to me, without a kind of robust legal framework, legal framework towards hate speech and hate crime, there's no way of tackling institutionalised racism. So I, I was just wondering what can we do as kind of normal citizens in lobbying government in, in trying to, you know, introduce some sort of legislation. Actually, it's not a question, it's a comment that I would like to contribute about Massey. Because um, 2014, the Athlone Data Provision Center, something that happened there that I think is interesting and should not be forgotten. And it also pinpoints about solidarity. Basically, when uh, asylum seekers organized inside, uh, one of the actions, the actions that they took was to donate the workers in. So the workers found a way to get into the 
compound from one of the insides that the travelers community on time block with a truck so the workers couldn't get in. So this is a story that I think it should be shared. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks. Anyone else? The uh, first speaker challenged me personally. Actually, I feel challenged when I was told that I can't just be um, non-racist. I have to be anti-racist. So is that the case then where the banner that said Ireland for the Irish, should I then as a citizen looking to be anti-racist tear that down? <laughs> That's your question. Good question. Um, We've got time for one last question. Jim um, O'Doherty yeah, got a thousand votes yet, despite being constantly harassed, banned, intimidated, death threats. So if she hadn't got those things, how well do you think she would have done? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, again, if it's uh, okay, we'll just go from left to right uh, in talking and answering or not. With respect to the legal uh, framework, I think there, there is already um, a, a whole kind of like movement to um, change the approach to hate crime here in Ireland. Uh, I think like um, I'm not, I don't have the numbers in my head at the moment, but Ireland has like one of the least kind of like amounts of prosecution for hate crime, and it's not because there isn't any hate crime; it's because of the legislation and the burden of proof um, being what it is. So for sure, there is a lot of scope for um, for improvement there, and I know Einar are very actively kind of like lobbying for this. So I think that's going to happen. The question is, is it going to be enough? Or is it going to then trigger responses like that gentleman's over there that, oh, we're all kind of like harassed and our rights are compromised, even though what you're doing, you're actually protecting people who have been in the receiving end for, for decades, for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So um, with respect to the banner, yeah, I would take it down. Uh, you have to think the following. <laughs> there are children there going to school whose parents are not from there, whose skin are different from the mainstream skin, and they see this every day. What message are you giving to the children living this banner there? And I'll, I'll tell you what, in the very same neighborhood, a few weeks later, there was an attack against an Indian father taking the child to school. Someone hit him with a car, and they shouted racist abuse. So if you're letting this there, you're enabling others to go further, to take it a step further. So yeah, if not personally, you can call the police, which I'm sure someone must have done because the banner is no longer there. So this is, this is the kind of like, I think position that that we should take. I think on the part of hate, uh, hate speech legislation, it won't end uh, racism, but it might uh, provide some sort of sanction for that country for for racism. But it's very limited. Like it only happens after the fact, so it doesn't in itself. Uh, 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 solve the problem. You will still have racism. You still have racism, and it's very difficult to uh, uh, prosecute. I come from South Africa. They tried for 
Yes, it is. I mean, when we have experience with apartheid, you think at the end of apartheid, all our races were cleansed. <laughs> <laughs> you think maybe they're like gone, like, oh, they're still there, like, we still catch them. And you still have to challenge and take them to court. The good thing about South Africa is that when a person says something very racist and does it so publicly, there are consequences. Mm. The last one who did, I can remember from the top of my head, was Penny Sparrow. She passed away recently. Uh, I think she suffered from cancer. But before that, she had called black people monkeys. And after her widely publicized post on Facebook when she was calling black people monkeys, she never once got a job somewhere. Nobody wanted to work with the races. Nobody wanted to associate with the races. Only had children, who, by the way, did not say anything wrong with the mother's post on Facebook. They said, oh, monkeys are cute. <laughs> so it's an enduring terrible for black <coughs> But there were consequences for her, and there were consequences for other people who were in senior positions who said racist things, who made racist statements. They lost their positions. There was a judge who, uh, uh, who called black men rapists. We know black men rape, but white men rape too. <laughs> and she resigned from the position because she was a judge. If you walk into a courtroom as a black man accused of rape, what happens? Because, and the, the, the complaint was then that they would uh, 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 investigate some of her uh, decisions. And guess what we found in, uh, in some of her decisions? I was one of those people who started reading the, the judgment she had made. She actually reduced sentences for rapists. <laughs> she reduced sentences for rapists who were convicted by lower courts, given higher sentences. So she wasn't actually all that biased. She, would, she, she wasn't the, the, the toughest judge you would face in South Africa if you were convicted of rape. But that in itself, the reduction of sentences, perpetuates her myth that black men are rapists. So if you come in and you're a rapist, she would make sure that you would be released sooner than you, you possibly can. Like, as soon as you can, you will get parole. You go off and you do your, your business again, and you come back to court again, and you're back to jail, because that's what happens in general in South Africa. Yeah. So, when we legislate, it doesn't end everything. It's important that we always remember that it's the, the one on one, the person themselves. It's not just institutions. Institutions are run by people. It's the people who need to change their mindset. Not even, I mean, laws are great that we can have a law to sanction the behavior, but if that is it and that's the only thing we're doing, we will still be back here in 2020. 2020 is next month. <laughs> 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 we'll be back here in 2020 talking about racism in Ireland. And I know the time is kind of up, so I'll just say quickly, you know, um, that it is really, really important that if we understand how, and it's, um, what's his name now, Ibram Kendi, he has a new book out, How to Be an Anti-Racist. You know, again, and in that book, he talks about it that you know that it is racist policies, that we have racist policies, 
breeds racist ideologies. So that when these policies exist, we then become, I, I write about, you know, some of us who become defenders of white supremacy, you know, because when somebody says, you say, oh no, but, you know, they don't have education, they don't, you know, so at that time, we become defenders of white supremacy. So what can we do in being um, anti-racist? So yes, please totally take down the flag, but also making sure that you do not endanger yourself. Mm -hmm. It's really, really important. <coughs> You know that you do not you know in, in trying to to do the right thing that we do not endanger ourselves in that process if, if it's not can't do it on your own then get you know get help to do that but we must i can't say it enough we must take actions it's not enough we cannot <coughs> do change unless you and i begin to take actions you know to to see all of those things so you know so again it's about one of the questions there is just about looking at our difference you know it's the same root. It never went, it didn't go away. You know, the racism in the world, you know, believing some people were superior or inferior to others, didn't go away. You know, so again, it, it's there and it's usually the trigger. So, for example, we're going to bring asylum seekers into a, a particular environment to stay there. That becomes the trigger for the, for the racism that is silent and was not operating. So, again, it's working with people to understand what is your trigger. You know, and to process that and creating those safe spaces where we look at what is the trigger for any racist belief or ideologies, you know, that I have. Mm -hmm. In what way am I a defender of white supremacy? That's the work that as individuals we must do. But also on a national policy level, we must look at our policies and our laws. What are the racist policies that are there? Because those racist policies create uh, an ideology that we then feel is safe. We buy into our national um, position, like our names, the food we like. So we also then buy into those policies to make them real. So again, it's about starting you know, from all of those places to make the change. We need anti-racists. So yeah, just, just very briefly, in terms of the comment around, um, I suppose, speech or hate speech, and I suppose one of the things I do kind of know from the third um, discussions this week, uh, I suppose, the by, by the Irish state to um, review the hate speech legislation that we have in existence. Uh, and I suppose there's always a balance, you get this argument, you know, the balance between sort of addressing or, or controlling hate speech and, and, and the notion of freedom of speech, and, and you know, mm -hmm. I never thought there is such thing as freedom of speech as such, when speech always costs somebody something, you know. But when it comes to uh, racist speech, in many sense, you know, the, you know, calling them be by 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 derogatory or horrible names costs that those people or that individual, you know, self-esteem or self-confidence or, or, or self-worth, you know, that's that's the cost of, of speech. That's the cost of, of, of hate speech particularly. So it isn't you know, speech is not free. Um, coming back to the kind of notion of, of you know tr and the tiny team with tonight's discussion, which was a sort of race in the city. I mean, I, I, I said I grew up in Avon, which is a small town, not a city outside of uh, Dublin. <laughs> but I mean, I, I've worked in Dublin since the you know mid eighties, and my first experience in Dublin was around the time the the incitement, the hatred act was was introduced was in 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 nineteen nineteen nine. I was thinking, when I started working in, in Dublin sort of as a teenager, coming from Avon, not really experienced sort of blatant sort of races or physical sort of notions of, uh, you know, you had the usual um, kind of smart out of comments in, in, in school or around the town, like with, with, with various, but, you know, I remember coming, getting a bus into town one day, get the bus home from Avon, the one I line, I said, I've been handed by an idiot standing on the street corner, I said, 
uh, white cards, like, you know, with horrible stuff on it about black people and niggers and knackers. And I just thought, you know, that that's that that was being done by by right wing uh, extremist British sort of nationalist groups who had a presence in Ireland. were actually using Ireland as a printing press, so they could print this stuff up and bring it to Britain and and, and, and effectively um, distribute it. But they were being distributed around the streets. Nothing. That's the first one I sort of experienced. Because in most cases, cities are actually quite welcoming places. Cities are not necessarily the place where the real racism gets expressed to some extent. You know, we do get it. You know, you can get because cities and capital cities particularly have parliaments or have the, 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 the centre of power, we get the protesters coming to do that, we get the people expressing it. But in, in many, most cases, cities are quite welcoming places. And, and the people within cities can be welcoming. And I think, not to, not to forget that, like, I mean, uh, you know, cities can be used to kind of combat racism and fight racism and they kind of challenge racism, uh, you know, that, that is, but it doesn't mean that they're not racist <coughs> in a city. Um, just the, the notion of the, actually, I am struck by that message because I'm not sure if I ripped down the flag. I, I think I would try and change the actual, the actual narrative of where because that that's come from a narrative and it it's, it has come from something that is <coughs> had a different meaning 25 years ago perhaps because of the notion of the political meaning of Irishness and you know the notion of whether you just go up and rip it down because they say the Irish for the Irish. I mean, we all have to accept that we all are Irish now. And the notion of, you know, so change the message as opposed to change the flag. I mean, it, it's it's a petty thing to write on, on, you know, the notion that Ireland for the Irish. I mean, and not accepting the reality of who are Irish and what, what it is to be Irish uh, in, in, in the current state. So, I mean, one thing is it is, it's correct, Irish, Ireland is for the Irish, but it's the definition of who are the Irish. That are, that are here, and, and and that's why I would try and change that discussion as opposed to say, well, you know, that the notion of all it is, you know, that that it, it, it's an opportunity to debate it. But I, I can I think if I if I was saying like ah, I grew up in Navan and Navan you know Navan for for whatever and not for travellers, um, <laughs> would I have the same reaction? I, you know, I saw those signs around Navan. I saw you know no halting signs here, uh, no travellers here, and and that does they exist? You know, and then people forget. I think everybody and everybody in this country who you know has to claim. I think earlier on the very first speaker spoke about not feeling confident enough to claim our Irishness. I mean that's what we need to do. We all have to be confident. We are Irish. We are here. And once we're here, Ireland is for the Irish, and that includes everybody. Thank you. Okay, thank you, and thanks to all the speakers uh, who came tonight. Uh, this is a really difficult panel to assemble. Uh, not because you, you were really good at answering and responding. Uh, it was really difficult because what do you talk about when you talk about racism in Dublin? I thought it was, and it is hugely important to talk about the experiences of asylum seekers and of travellers, but what about the experience of Muslims? What about the experience of Eastern Europeans, of Brazilians? This is also important. The talking about sites of racism, you know, online racism, and jobs. This is vital site of where race and racial categorizations happen. But also what about housing? What about education? And in some ways when you kind of think about all of these things and the multiple forms of the way that race works its way through Irish society can in some terms lead to despair, can't it? And so I guess what I want to take from this is also some of the messages of 
hope. <laughs> but, no, honestly, that you, that you did bring today, that what you were talking about in your various ways are the principles of decency, of anti-racism, and of solidarity with each other, is perhaps what I would like everyone to be considering about from today. One of the things, as, as you pointed out, uh, Dublin is a site of political protests and political rallies. And one of the things in, in case of what we can do, certainly lobby politicians, there will be an election uh, next year, it looks like. Race is going to be an issue for the first time in Irish politics. There is going to be a rally on uh, Saturday, the 14th of December. It's at 1 p.m. outside Leinster House. And it's by a new uh, umbrella body called Solidarity Alliance Against Racism and Fascism. They're having a rally against the politics of hate. Maybe that's something else that can be done. There is some things that can be done. And we're living in a situation now where there are things that have to be done. So thanks for coming along tonight. Thanks for listening to all the speakers. And I'd like to very much uh, thank them. The history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Carl and Sue. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminist.